All right, so first things first, looks a little different up here. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, you're like, this is just a weird setup for church. Uh, but uh, we are having a Shakespeare play in the uh, theater for the next couple of weekends, so it's going to look like this for the next two weeks. Um, also, I just felt like this message was more for these people than these people, so I hope that's okay. You guys okay with that? I'm going to do my, yeah, exactly. you guys can leave. I don't care what you do. Just make sure you grab your kids. Uh, so I'll try, and, I'll try and address kind of everybody in, in there, but uh, Twelfth Night Shakespeare Play taking place this next week if you're looking for some art and culture in the Tri-Cities. Look no further than Rude Mechanicals. All right. That's my done with my commercial. Welcome to East Lake. So glad that you're here. We are in a series, uh, part two, uh, called The Art of Labor. It's a series on work, which is an interesting kind of comparison because we don't often equate uh, labor uh, or w- our work with labor. Um, I, I, we kind of know that that's there, but like you don't, like you didn't come home from the office this week or whatever, and your wife go, How was labor today? And you're like, Labor was great. Thanks for asking, right? Uh, labor is like the, it's, it, it's synonymous with like toil, um, it's synonymous with like, uh, like the penal colonies for like the Russian gulag, the Soviet gulag system, right? Um, like that's, that was, that for, in our mind is labor. And I know you're sitting there, did he just say penal? Yes, you can mark that off on your bingo card actually for church bingo. Uh, you didn't think you'd get that square today, but it worked out, <laughs> lucky for you. Um, so uh, as Seth mentioned last week, our, our work is, is more than just something that we do to make money and produce for ourselves. Like there's, there's so many f- different factors going on with it. It deserves our attention and, and a series on it. And I, it's one of the probably three or four topics that just gets, I think this is our third or fourth work type of series uh, since we started this church nine years ago. And so I, I and it's always important for me. I love it. And uh, uh, somebody that, I, I, that works with me on the podcast stuff says, I can tell that you love talking about work. And it's so interesting because she's like, it's not as big of a thing for me, but I get it because when you meet people, oftentimes before, when you say, hey, it's nice to meet you, what's your name? Uh, before they can even finish their name, you're like, what do you do for a living, right? Like that's what you're, so, like you're so interested in that kind of stuff. And it's very true. Like uh, we know that in our workplace, uh, uh, there's so much wrapped up in what we do. It can become a part of our identity. It can give us our greatest sense of purpose and meaningfulness in life. And, and we know that it shouldn't. We know that family should be up here, but sometimes that kind of leaks and, and sometimes priorities get skewed and, and messed up and we begin to prioritize other things over that and work becomes, work is a natural thing that, that, that kind of drives us in this way. And it's interesting uh, because uh, we are kind of built in this in this whole scene. Like even, even from the very beginning when it was, God, it was God doing the creation process, worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, it's not like he leisured for six days and then decided to give it a go on the seventh, decided to get productive a little bit. Like we are built to withstand uh, labor. We are built to withstand work. It provides so much uh, significance uh, for us in this way. And life can take a dark shade uh, when we begin to find ourselves hating whatever it is that we find ourselves doing. We like, we like, I hate work. And we have a little voice inside of our heads or a voice inside of our car that drives with us everywhere we go. Yeah, but yeah, but you, but you make so much money, right? And you're like, yeah, but I hate what I do. Like I cry on Mondays. Like Mondays are the worst day of my week, and it's not even. It's not even close. Um, or I do so many things to distract myself in, in, with hobbies and, and things and on my phone or whatever. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to, even when I'm at work, I'm like distracting myself from what it is uh, that I'm doing. And I recognize that there are those of you who are in the room this morning who are facing more unique challenges than this. Like a work series comes up and I go, oh, great, this is perfect because I have been recently promoted to resume builder. Um, so that's, I, I currently work for careerbuilder.com as a customer. That's what I'm doing right now. And um, so a work series is, it feels irrelevant. And uh, I, I don't think that that's true. I think that there's going to be some pieces in here that are going to be relevant for you. Maybe you're in a post-work season of life. 
Some guy named Edward Jones told you you don't have to work anymore. You're like, you're good. And you're like, this is great. Uh, maybe you're in a pre-work. Um, school is your work. You're like, in, you're like gearing up for it. And you're going to school uh, right now. And that is your work so that you don't have to have a job that feels like labor. I want to go to school. Or maybe you, went to, maybe you were already in the workforce. You hated what you're doing. So I'm like, I'm going back to school so that I can do a job that doesn't feel, again, like toil and labor. I'm fine with work. I'm fine with being productive or whatever about this. Or maybe, maybe you're a, a stay-at-home mom or a, 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 what did I write down? Now maybe your work is family and home development. And you came up with that title for yourself because your mother-in-law, uh, who worked her whole life, uh, you wanted to make it very, very clear that what I do is just as important. It's probably harder work than whatever it is that you did in your day-to-day job, right? And it's so true. And, and I wanted to ma- make sure to address this because uh, my wife is a stay-at-home mom. And um, there's always, anytime I do a series on work, she's always telling me, hey, don't forget like to address um, some of that stuff in, in the room because that's a significant thing. And it's a, it's a real thing that uh, people, whoever, husbands or wives or whoever stays at home with these kids, like that, that's a big process. There's a quote from a guy named C.S. Lewis who is really famous. And if you've been a part of Eastlake any length of time, he shows up in about every other message that I talk about. So here's, here's my, my weekly or my daily C.S. Lewis quote of the day. He says, uh, the context is this. Um, he wrote a bunch of books, and he was a professor at uh, Oxford University. Um, but he also took the time, he was known for responding personally to letters that were written to him. Uh, they didn't do email because <laughs> it didn't exist at the time. Uh, those letters were a lot of times collected and kept, and they form, um, they show a, like a very personal side of him and one that is willing to engage in kind of the minutia of everyday life. And one of these is a stay-at-home mom who's struggling, uh, or she's a homekeeper. She's trying, she's struggling with this, like, I'm doing this because I feel like I'm supposed to, but like... I'm struggling with fulfillment, and, and I, I want to go back, and I want to go, I, I, I want to I be uh, back in the workforce. I want to do some, some important things, but, but I know that this is where I'm, like, called to be at this time, right? And so he responds to her, and this is in his letter. I think I can understand the feeling about a housewife's work being like that of Sisyphus. She introduced this, this idea of Sisyphus. If you're not familiar with your Greek, if you're not, like, brushed up on your Greek mythology, let me, let me remind you who Sisyphus was, and I had to look it up too, so don't, I'm not that smart either. But um, if you Google it, what you'll find is Sisyphus was the Greek god uh, who used to be a king who was cursed because of his uh, ego and self-aggrandizement or whatever uh, to every single day roll a stone all the way up a hill only to watch it as he let go and thinking he was done, roll all the way back down and have to do the exact same thing tomorrow. So imagine being cursed with everyday life. This is what you're doing. And this, this, this mom is writing this going, this is what my life feels like. I do laundry and there's, it's never ending. I empty the basket and before I set it on the ground again, there's more, right? I keep feeding these kids and the next day they go, I'm hungry and they're hungry again. And it's like, Every day, I roll the, the ball up the hill only to watch it come down and have to be able to do this thing over again. And I'm struggling with the uh, repetitive nature of all of this. Totally get that. So then he says, but it is surely in reality the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc., exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? We wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have leisure. We produce food in order to eat it. So your job is the one for which all others Exists. So before you excuse yourself as part of this series because you're not currently working or you're in school or you're a stay-at-home mom or whatever, this is not about like, do you get a paycheck? What does your W-2 say? And how many allowances do you have for family dependencies, right? This is uh, speaking to our, the, the thing that is in us that wants to be productive, 
that we want to produce things. Whether or not we get paid for it, every one of us has this innate thing that I think was created in us to do something with the skills and the talents that we have been blessed with. And what is it that we put our hands and our attention to? And my wife has seen in me um, a, an admiration for people who are hyper-productive. She's like, you, you see people who are successful or give themselves entirely things, and like it's in their veins, whether, they, whether it's a, a volunteer thing or a, a work thing or they develop this company or they do this thing, like you admire that so much. You give them a free pass in other arenas of their life because they're so good at their job. And I'm like, I totally, I, I get that. I understand that. I do. I have an admiration for those people. Like her and I had very different reactions to that Steve Jobs movie that came out a few years ago. It's been, it's been a few years now. So if you don't remember it, that's fine. But in it, she watches it two and a half hours or whatever it is. And afterwards, we're sitting on the couch and we're discussing it and digesting it. And she goes, he was such a sad and depressed individual. And he oftentimes would take it out on the people that he was closest to and supposed to love. And then I go, should I put the Steve Jobs tattoo on my back or my shoulder? Where should I put this thing? Like we have very different reactions to this sort of thing, right? And we, we know that there's something in us about like this productive thing to work, which is why in the beginning there was work. One of the points that Seth made briefly and I really want to highlight again today is that work, when everything was perfect, God introduced work and productivity into the world. The apple, all of that kind of stuff, and the, the sin and all that kind of thing, that all comes, right? And then there's, there's ramifications as a result, but work precedes that. It is not as if, oh, you ate the apple, you shouldn't have done that. You know what you get now? Time cards and W-2s, prepare yourself. Here's punishment on the way. Genesis the word Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, actually means origins. And I, I really believe that a lot of the stories in there are, was mankind's or the Jewish, Jewish way of trying to understand a little bit more about us, who we are, um, whether or not they're historical, we can talk about that. But I think that the most important piece for us is like, this is kind of all of us, isn't it? When given a chance to have anything we wanted, and with the exception of this one thing, hey, you can pick anything, but please don't touch that. What is it that we're drawn towards? I buy my, my son Clive. He has so many freaking toys, it's ridiculous. They're everywhere. He doesn't want to play with any of them. You know what he wants to play with? Anything that's expensive and that can break or that can electrocute him, right? And I'll be like, you can touch any, I'll take him up to our playroom, play with anything you want. But if you touch that electrical outlet, daddy's going to have to slap your hand. And he's like, you know what I mean? Like, why? What is that? We're all, like that whole story, that kind of speaks to us. Why is it that when we're told, don't do this one thing, we find ourselves wanting to do it? They're going, this is how it works. And in the creation story, he, he, they, they talk about how um, in, in Genesis that God created and that he did this in, in, a, in, a, in a way that it was intentional, it was purposeful. And he, and he named the, uh, the day and the night, but then when it came to naming the animals, he let man co-create with him. I'm gonna create ex nihilo out of nothing, but then I want you to bring cultivation. I want you to bring culture to this thing. I create and then you create and we do this sort of thing together, which stood in direct and stark contrast 
contrast to a lot of the different creation stories that were t- taking place during that ancient time where they believed that in like the Enuma Elish and all this kind of stuff, that the gods were like warring and, and in an effort to kind of build up their own stuff, that they created these worlds and humans were just meant to be pawns in this cosmic battle that's going on. So either we're a product of accidents or a product of conflict. Genesis stands out as, no, we're not a product of any of those things. We were created to create. We were invited to create. We feel like there's something in us that's contrasted in that way. And as such, the process is creative and it's collaborative in this way. This is how it reads in Genesis chapter one, verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That word there, fill the earth and subdue it, a theme verse for this entire series. What does it mean to fill the earth and uh, subdue it. For sure, there's, there's some, uh, for a lot of times, Jewish people thought of it being a productivity thing or a procreation thing. Fill the earth, like have lots of babies. And that's part of it, but that's not the whole of it, even though that's what my wife thinks it is. And we've had four kids. Fill the earth is more, let's, let's take, let's bring this idea of culture into all of this. It equates to more than just human beings. It talks about human society and the, uh, the important thing that comes along with that. And subduing the earth does not mean exploiting it. Divested of its natural resources as inefficiently and as quickly as possible. That is not what subdue the earth means. Subdue the earth means have dominion over it. It means there's an, a level of, of stewardship and trusteeship. And that probably is like a whole topic that deserves its own series. And we might do that at some point. But it's definitely a, you're kind of in charge of this. And you're going to be held accountable for how this whole thing works itself out. Yet there is an assertive nature to this. Like there's going to be some work involved in subduing the earth. Um, There's going to be some things that are going to require work. And you know this, if you've ever owned a house or had a garden or done anything in terms of any sort of home maintenance or repair projects or whatever, this is how the process typically works for us. We walk in, we say, this area rug needs to be washed. And actually, then it goes on to the next thing. Actually, I think we should just change out this whole carpet now that we're down here doing this because you, you don't want to wash a rug and then have the carpet be dirty around it. We should just tear out the carpet and do that. And while we're at it, it makes sense to change out the baseboard. And if you're going to change out the baseboard, I mean, it just makes sense to paint because then you get the clean edge. You don't have to tape anything. So let's just, as we're doing that, we'll just kind of continue this project. And while you're changing the base, uh, yeah, we'll get the paint going on. If we're going to paint, those light fixtures need to go. And you know what? We should just move. That's what we should just probably do. <laughs> That's how it ends up for us. But we know like life begets work. We do a little project and we're not finished. Work begets more work because we were made for this. We create, we renew, we remodel, we farmhouse it, we build it, we upgrade it, we produce it. It is in us. It's that feeling whenever you take out the old and replace it with the new and fill in the blank on whatever that dishwasher, sinks, shower, whatever it is. We take out the old, we replace it with the new. We offer to put some of that created, and this is, this is true for us, we have that in, within us. We offer to put some of that creative energy into the products of a company in exchange for financial resources so that we can create, build, buy, break, and replace for our family. So for a time, I will exchange my time and, and use my creativity for what this, this product or this service or whatever it is, this job that I have in exchange for money so that I can do a little bit of this in my own house and in my own thing. We are creators, because we were built by a creator who created and in his own personal likeness. Talks about how we are created in the image of God. And I really don't think that's like, this is what God looks like. Although you might look at this body and be like, no, that makes sense. Just kidding. <laughs> that was not in the notes, but that was really funny. I should have done that first service. Uh, 
created in the image of God, not because we look like him or her or whatever, but because we create like him or her. Created in the image of God. Now, all of that sounds really great. In fact, it sounds a little bit utopian, which that's a word that means like so good that it can't possibly be true. Because what we find ourselves saying is, that's not what my job feels like, right? And that might not be true for some of you. For some of you, you may be like, that's what I do. You just describe my work. I can't wait till Monday. Is it Monday yet? Let's go. Let's get this thing finished up. I cannot wait till 8 a.m. on Monday morning. It's like my favorite time of the week. You're crazy. I'd love to meet you and uh, figure out what you're doing. But that's a lot of times not what our job feels like. This week, I had the opportunity to attend my five-year-old niece's preschool graduation. Now, I don't know if you've ever attended a preschool or when the last time you attended a preschool graduation. But let me tell you what happens at every preschool graduation that I've ever been a part of. There is a video slideshow montage with the kids dressed up with a blackboard um, that has written on the blackboard what they want to be when they grow up. There's a cute little song that goes along with it. It's like cutes and kidsy, right? And it says, what do you want to be? And then they're sitting there and it just flashes through and it just rotates through. It's the most emotional part of the whole event for my wife. She's crying. She's in tears. She knows exactly one of those kids. And she's like, this is so cute. They all did. And uh, I, had, I had one of those, uh, well, yeah, moments um, in, in, on this week on Thursday because not a single one of those kids wrote pastor down on their blackboard. <laughs> not one of them. I thought I had a shot. There was one guy who was like super nerdy. He's like glasses and like all this kind of stuff. I'm like, come on, buddy, come on. And he's like, ah, firefighter. That's what they, by the way, apparently our future is filled with arson and forest fires because every one of them wanted to be a firefighter. It's like 17 firefighters. It was, it was like a joke at some point. And I think it was because their last field trip was to the fire department. So that's like probably what happened. They're just like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go with that, right? So whatever. But anyways. You laugh, but they didn't write down your job either, I promise you. <laughs> Nuclear engineer, not happening, right? Um, when I was doing youth ministry, I did youth ministry for five and a half years in my dad's church in Pasco. I would have juniors and seniors come up to me and with anxiety, like, deal with, like, what am I going to do? Like, I have people coming. And by the way, this is crazy. As, I remember having anxiety as a junior and senior in high school when people would be like, so what do you want to do with your life? Now we're asking five-year-olds at their preschool graduation, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? It's like massive pressure. Billy over there wants to be a firefighter. What do you think? <laughs> like that's, that's amazing pressure. And these, these high school juniors and seniors would come up and be like, I'm struggling with this. I don't know what I want to do. Like I know I want to, I want to go to college. Or I want to go to trade school. I want to do this. But I'm like, I'm not sure. And I'm so, I'm like waiting for like, I don't know, they're waiting for their youth pastor, somebody to be like, here, well, here's, I, here's what I know about you, and here's what you should do, right? I, I don't know if they want direction. I think they kind of do, but they also want like the freedom to be able to make, they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept that. They would, they'd push back against that for sure. But anyways, like we, we crave this like certainty when it comes to our vocation, don't we? It's interesting how this works. And, and we, we, we find ourselves um, saying things like, I'm not sure. And I, I thought, by the way, that, that would go away once I graduated into big church, right, with, with older people. With, not, not that you're older, but you're older than a junior in high school. Um, I thought that this idea of dissatisfaction or, or unawareness of what I want to do with my life or how I want to spend my life would go away. And yet now, all it is is I have people coming to me going, I've been doing this, but that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what it, did, what it is that I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm pretty sure it's not this. And when I say, well, why don't you think it's this? Because my supervisor told me this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so... I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. And I'm like, no, yeah, that's definitely sure. It's a clear sign that that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Um, 
So then we'd say, what's my calling? I need help deciding and figuring out my calling. And then the question becomes, do you believe in a particular calling? You wouldn't say that in that words, but I know that's what you mean because um, there's basically two different versions of a calling. There's a general calling. I think we're all called to be disciples of Christ. I think we're all called to love our neighbor, to discern what it means to wear love in our communities. I think that's a general calling. And then the question becomes, do you feel like individual people are particularly called to certain practices or certain professions or certain things? Do you feel like um, God wants you to do this and this only, and if you do this other thing, that that's not what he wants you to do, and he's guiding you to this? And so I remember um, when I first became a pastor, all right, and I didn't write it on my blackboard as a kid, as a preschool leader, don't worry, um, I got a job at my dad's church, and I was a part of a denomination where you would apply for, part of the job was you had to apply for what's called a license to preach, all right? And so you, basically, if you filled out the paperwork and paid the $25 application fee, you got the license to preach. There's a couple other prerequisites, but for the most part, it was that. And you get a little license thing, which I would then keep in my wallet, and never, I got pulled over, and they'd be like, I need to see your license. I'd be like, which one do you want to see? And he'd be like, I don't know what that is. So, so give me the driver's license, right? Uh, so that's how, per, that's how useful it was. Anyways, and then after two years of being licensed, you would have enough of a track record to apply for ordination, which was like a next level. Basically, you paid more dues and everything. Anyways, um, then, but part of the ordination process is you would sit in a room with uh, older guys, and they would begin to kind of interrogate you on why you feel like you want the blessing of ordination within this church. And one of the questions that was infamous in the process, because we all knew this, was um, one of them would be, um, say, something like this, tell us about your calling. And they would say it in that voice, like the voice would change. They'd be like, well, do you like, you know, tell us about yourself and your family? And, and But then when it came to the calling, it was tell us about your calling, right? And what they're fishing for is like this great story of like, so I was asleep, and then I woke up, and then I heard the audible voice of God. And I said, yes, Lord. And he said, Richland Uptown Theater. And I said, are you sure? It smells like cat urine. Are you, you want me to go there? Yes. And then we started the church, and now here I am applying for ordination. And they would stand up and clap and be like, that's it? You, you obviously are called, because why would you ever go to that theater if you weren't? So um, uh, they, they wanted... a like the big fish story. And I remember like I was there and I, I didn't have any of those types of things. And I remember my response was essentially this. Um, well, uh, tell me what you're calling. Uh, my dad is a pastor. Um, he seems to enjoy what he does. Seemed like a pretty good gig for him for 20 something years that he's been doing it. Um, I like talking to people. Um, decent up front. I know when to use wit and humor uh, appropriately and sometimes inappropriately. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like a good gig. And they were not impressed at all. They were scratching their notes. They ended up giving me ordination anyways. And I think it was just because my dad was, you know, knew they were buddies with my dad or whatever. But I remember like not impressed with my calling. And I think one of the reasons for this uh, is that it fell for me into the category of something that you may have never named in this way, but you kind of think in this way. A category called a diaphora. 
It's not a, it's not, it's a Latin term, so it's not really a biblical, it doesn't show up in the Bible. It's not Greek or whatever. But a diaphora is this idea of all of the extra, like these non-essentials. The, the actual definition uh, looks a little bit of something like this. In different matters in which Christians exercise discernment within Christian freedom. Uh, so uh, how it works is basically um, the Bible was written, um, you know, 2,000 years ago, right? So it, there's things that it explicitly says that we should kind of listen to. And then there's a lot of things that are not addressed. Did you know that there's not one single chapter about online dating in the Bible? It's crazy, right? And so in that area, the idea is that is a non-essential, which we are supposed to use discernment and wisdom to be like, well, what do, based on everything else that's in here, that area is a diaphora. So what should we do in light of this? Um, work became, was not always viewed in this way. Martin Luther was one of the Re- uh, Reformation guys, right, in Germany. Um, in post-Reformation um, Christianity, uh, they had seen basically the Catholic Church at that point in, a, in an abusive way say, really the only good callings, particular callings in your life is that of the priesthood or within the church um, taking the, the vows of, of be, becoming a nun or a monk or whatever. Uh, th- those are, that's this, and then what you do at work, that's kind of different. That's not like spiritual in any way. That's, that's the profane. Um, and then, but how you serve the church, that becomes sacred and that becomes what, what's important. And Luther kind of takes that, rejects that and says, I'm not so sure that that's actually true. I think that how you do your job is important. I think that your vocation, whether you're a blacksmith or a cobbler or all of these professions that no longer exist, but existed at the time, like those, that's a spiritual work. There's so much going on in that, that way. So they developed what they called the Augsburg Confession, which is a list of things that we believe, all right? And, and if you came from another church background, there's a good chance you came on our website looking for a list of what we believe, right? Because you wanted to make sure you weren't signing up for a cult. That's what you wanted to make sure and that we didn't, you know, we had some beliefs in a row and we believed all, all these certain things. If you go to our About Us website, you can see we only have the list of five. We're very, we're, there's far more in the Augsburg Confession. But essentially for them, this was, this is what we're going to stand firm on. And then the, the practice was everything else beyond this is a diaphora. Like, we don't know. They're, they're important matters. They're not not important, but we're just not sure that it's prescriptive in scripture about what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to kind of exercise wisdom in this area. The early church dealt with something like this. Acts chapter 15. Jesus in his last message to disciples says, go and make all disciples starting in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The disciples heard Jerusalem and Judea, which is like their hometowns. And they're like, we got this. But then it really didn't expand beyond that until Paul comes on the scene, right? Paul begins expanding, doing missionary work in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and all these different areas. And people are hearing these stories about these Gentiles, which basically means non-Jewish people, becoming Christian. There's some concern because they felt like they should become Jews before they can become Christians. Like that's the pathway towards this. And so they're like, there's confusion about what's the proper steps for identifying with Jesus. He was a Jew. What should we do with this? We, there's, there's warring factions and all of these different things taking place. So James steps up. James is the pastor of the Jerusalem church. One, one of the guys who probably it would be to his benefit to be able to say they must become Jews before. And by the way, you know, I'm, we're Jewish and we're in the Jerusalem church. So we have a lot more input in this. And instead he steps up and he says a phrase that has been kind of a, a life mantra for this church. It, from the very beginning when we started this thing, 
his thoughts in this way. I mean, if, if we could paint verses on the walls, we would. We don't because we rent the theater out to too many people and people don't like that. So we don't do it. But um, if we could, it would be this. James st- steps up and says, I don't, I, I don't think we should make it difficult for people who are far from Jesus who are turning to him. I don't think we should make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. We should make everything, we should make it as easy as possible for them. And that's essentially what we've tried to do. We've said, okay, well, we're gonna be a church for people who don't typically like church. We're gonna move in that direction. We're gonna take James at his word and be that kind of thing in the Tri-Cities community. Anyways, that's all all aside. So the, the response of the people hearing James, they then take a vote and they vote in favor of James's proposal to not make it difficult. Uh, and then they draft a letter to all of these different churches that Paul and some of his people can take with them as kind of a vote of affirmation that yes, Paul is with us. He is getting, he's gotten permission or approval from the central church that this is what we all believe about Christianity and faith and all that kind of stuff. And in that phrase, here's what it says. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then they go on and they list two or three different things that we don't need to go into details on what they were. But essentially this opening phrase right here, it seemed good to us. It feels right. We've kind of prayed about it. We're exercising wisdom and discernment in this area. We don't have verses to back this up. This just feels like in light of the circumstances, the proper way to do this moving forward. A diaphora. I can't exactly tell you what God wants in this area, but it seems like this is the way to move forward in this. This is it showing up within scripture. The issue in question is important. It's not just an opinion thing. There's like some value there. There's, there's some weight to the issue, right? How are they gonna handle this? This is the big weighty issue. But the freedom, the freedom that's entailed in it, that's like God's not gonna be disappointed in one way or the other. I think he's just waiting for us to make a decision. So when it comes to not just belief systems, because I think that Diaphora transcends that uh, beyond that. I think it goes into, I remember having people come up to me, in, in, even in this church, and, and come up to me like, so I'm dating this girl, really like her, trying to figure out if I th- she think she's the one. Do you think that God has somebody picked out for every, one right person for every person and you got to find your one. It's a romantic idea that plays well in movies and narratives, but not in like real life, right? So then my response typically to them, and, and I would never use the word, uh, let me tell you about a diaphora, right? Because that's weird at Starbucks, but I'm telling you about it here. Um, I would say, I don't think that there's a right one. I think that for me, my wife Kylie became the right one once I said my vows to her. Then she was, then, so now I believe that she's the one and only, right? Because now I'm not like, well, she's one of many options and I'm just currently, you know, whatever, that's creepy. I'm not doing that. She is the one. But up until that point, she wasn't. Until then I decided, so like my prayers to God, of God, we should make it clear. Like, let me wake up in the middle of the night and be like, it's Kylie. It's Kylie. It's for sure Kylie. Great, great. I didn't have any of that. I just like go in that direction. God's like, great, we can work with that. I don't care who you pick. Now, once you pick her, I have a lot of things to say about how you should then love her, okay? Does that make sense? I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but I will have opinions on how you begin to do it. 
And the reason for this, I, I think this is important because if Kylie didn't have a choice, if I was the one right guy for her and she had no other option, she would have a case for God saying, you know, going to him going, I kind of got screwed in this because like he's fine, but like, look at me. I have, I have way better options than what you currently have blessed me with, right? But I became her right one just because she was delusional and said yes for some reason. So that's great. In the area of work, what am I called to? What's the one thing I'm supposed to do? We can oftentimes think or use the phrase, I think God's calling me to something. And when you say that to me, I'm gonna like go along with you because it, it sounds like sometimes that's what you need. Like you've created this narrative to kind of justify this for yourself and that's fine. But just so you know, I don't think that if you do this one thing, you are in line with what God wanted for you. And if you do anything else, you're not. I think that this is the category of, in the, in the requirements of a DFR is, I'm gonna exercise some wisdom and some understanding. I'm gonna ask myself the question, what am I good at? What are my natural inclinations? What do other people say that I'm good at? What job pays well? What, what job supports the kind of lifestyle that I want myself and my family to lead? Those are all discernment questions when it comes to this idea of work. So I don't want you to live under this grief of, ah, I think I may have chosen the wrong thing. I've been doing this for 20 years and I can't really get out because I'm, so, you know, like I'm, I'm too far in, like I'm, I'm invested in this way. And if I leave now, it's gonna be just killing me. I, listen, I don't, I don't think that that's how it works. I think that God is kind of like a little bit open to what do you wanna do? I've given you, I've given you certain things, right? There are, certain, there are certain jobs you probably shouldn't do, all right? But then there's probably a plethora of options of what you could do. And once you pick that thing that you do, I have a lot of things to say about how you then do it. That's the beauty and the value of the idea for piece. And Paul talks about this. So what is it? How, what, what advice do you have for me? In, Ro in Colossians chapter three, he, he lists, he, he does this thing called a household code, um, which common kind of literary way of device of, of talking about some things. And he begins to address different areas of what you might be a husband, you might be a wife, you might be a child, you might be a slave, you might be a this, and slave was employee, you might be an employee, you might be this, you might be this. And then at the very end, he summarizes it. And here's what he says, and this is his, I don't care what you do, but I do care how you do it. Whatever it is that you do, Romans, or Colossians chapter three, verse 23, whatever it is that you do, work at it, as if you're working for God and not for man. Whatever it is that you do, whatever you find yourself doing. But I wanna be uniquely called to something. That's fine, I get it, whatever. I think God's going, pick something and then do that with all of your heart as if you're working for God, not for man. Let me show this to you in a really practical um, uh, illustration that I think is gonna kind of close our time up together. A tale of two bus drivers. Our house is located just far enough away from the school that our kids ride the bus. The bus stop is conveniently located right outside of our house, which is why we'll never move, because that is so incredibly convenient if you've never experienced that before. It's a beautiful thing. You can see the bus and be like, now it's time to go. And it's raining out and they don't want to stand out there. It's great. One day we got a call from a friend in the neighborhood, just living down the road. Her kid rides the same bus that our kids ride. Uh, because, uh, uh, and asking if we had talked to London about what happened on the bus that day. Now, 
This was like a couple of years ago. So our twins weren't quite ready to ride the bus. It was just London. Our twins were at preschool learning what it takes to be a firefighter. So th- that's a little different. So she came, she called us up and said, something happened on the bus. Have you talked to London? Did London say anything? We said, no. And she said, talk to her and then call me back. So we're like, oh boy. All right. But we didn't want to like give it away. Do you know how you like play that game where you're like, hey, so how was your day? Like, tell us about your day. And did you, how was lunch? And did you hang out with any friends? And how was the bus ride? And who'd you sit by? And did anything out of the ordinary happen, right? And at that point, she knows the story's turned. London's probably nine or 10 at the time. So uh, how was the bus ride? Good. Who'd you sit by? Ashley. Uh, And then as soon as we said, did anything out of the ordinary happen on the bus? Immediately, like visibly, you could see her mood shifted. And she got sad. And we could tell something was going on. And so then we press a little bit further on this, and she told us kind of the story. The bus driver, who, by the way, had never been like particularly friendly with us uh, as, as parents or whatever, but when you're a bus driver and your job is like filled with loud screaming kids all day, like my, my bar of expectations for you is pretty low. You know what I mean? Like you could be a jerk and I'd be like, no, I totally get it. Do whatever you need to do. Um, but being fed up with the students, not listening about sitting down and facing forward while the bus was in motion, decided to, and I'll be generous here, tap the brakes, sending the kids forward into the hard seats in front of them. Not for the first time, by the way, as we're finding out, but this time so hard that our friend's daughter walked out with a bloody nose coming off of the bus, which is why she said, talk to London and see what happened. And all of a sudden, we're hearing this story, and we're like, okay, this... Now, before you get all judgy, How many of you as parents have ever wanted to do that before? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. See, (laughs) we've wanted to, but, you know, so, like, I I totally understand. Now, my wife has never called and complained to the school district about anything ever, or just in general, in life in general. Like, if her salad had, like, a bug in it, she would take that bug home and like name it and build something for it. You know what I mean? Like she would not send it back to the kitchen. She'd be like, this is great. Like I get a little take home prize too. That's awesome. She would never call. And she, and she had never called and complained to the school district ever before about anything until that day. Now I've got a picture of that bus driver. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I didn't want you to, I wouldn't do that to him. By the next week, there was a new person driving that bus, to nobody's surprise. And he still honks aggressively at me when I'm not physically at the stop when the bus arrives to pick up my kids, but still. Now, contrast that story. And I don't know what happened. The school district doesn't talk about it. You just, there's just a, this is your new bus driver, right? So anyways, contrast that story with this one. During this exact same time, London asked if she could ride bus 15 home. Uh, because she doesn't grasp how bus routes work and it <laughs> doesn't come to our house, right? <clears throat> and by the way, uh, bus 515 is not the real number of the bus, uh, so don't go like look it up or whatever. Um, and our question to her was, well, why do you want bus 15? And she said, because that bus driver is really nice. And we said, well, tell us about him. And she said, well, he sings songs with the kids on the bus the whole way home. And he gives them candy sometimes when they get on the bus. Now, I know that might freak some of you out. They were individually wrapped, and I don't think he does it anymore. But anyways, (laughs) at some point, he used to give out candy as the kids got on the bus. And he would always ask kids for a high five when they got on the bus because it's his birthday. 
but I don't think it's really his birthday because he says it every day, Dad. (laughs) And we all call it the party bus, and everybody wants to ride that bus. You see the contrast of the two? I don't know this guy. I've never met him before in my life. And my guess is he didn't write bus driver on the blackboard in preschool. Like, that's probably not what he always dreamed of doing. But for some reason, life paths took him to the spot where this is what I'm currently doing, and I'm making this thing work, and I'm choosing to make the best of this situation. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I have no idea. All I know innately there's something in us that wants to create and wants to make the best out of this. And I know what he's, what he's doing, whether he knows it or not, is he's doing his work not for himself and not because the supervisor is like, please sing songs to the kids. They would never have that expectation. They would never say, if you could just lie to the kids and tell them it's your birthday every day so that they'll like, hey, give you a high five. That really works across bus routes. He figured this out on his own. Do you know what I mean? Why? Because he likes his job because he's making the most out of it. I don't think that he was uniquely particularly called to be a bus driver, but he's making it work. And that right there, I don't know what it is that you do. I don't think there's particular callings and in one way you're in the will of God and one way you're out. But I do know he has some stuff to say about how you do your work. Whatever it is that you find yourself doing, do it as if working for the Lord and not for man. Think about that this week. As you do, whatever it is that you do to work, to produce, to earn money, to create, to live out your God-ordained identity. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to begin to digest this, to understand this, to recognize this design of work that I think you implanted on each and every single one of us to be producers. And this isn't like a utopian, like I'm gonna have this attitude every single day. Like I understand that there's gonna be moments, seasons where it just feels like toil and it feels like labor. Um, But... I would ask that no matter how it is that we're producing, even if it's not even like a professional, like we don't get a paycheck for this, what the things that we are producing, that we would do it in such a way that is so different, like people see it and they tell stories about it at their church even though they've never met the guy, right? That's the kind of way that I wanna do my work. That's the kind of, what, what, if, what if we as a church figured this out corporately and lived that out in our identity of, of uh, how it is that we work in our community? So give us the wisdom to know what to do with this, the curse act on it in your name, amen.